down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we'll end our reading there this morning. Back in 2003, a climber named Aaron Ralston was climbing in a a narrow canyon in Utah. And he was up on the canyon wall and in a... uh, a a crack in the wall, and a, a small boulder shifted and pinned his hand against the wall. And he tried and tried for six days to try to get uh, free from that boulder that pinned his hand there. No one knew where he was. Uh, he struggled to survive those days. He finally realized he was going to die if he didn't get uh, away very, very soon. And so, uh, famously, now he, he took out his multi-tool and cut off his hand, and repelled down and lived to, to tell his story. Well, Jesus in Matthew 5 says something not so different, not really less gruesome, about cutting off your hand, gouging out your eye, uh, to save your life. And it's often said when, when Christians read this, this passage here in the Sermon on the Mount, well, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, and we, we quickly and easily move on. I don't think we're supposed to move on so quickly from from Jesus' shocking language here. uh, Or to assume he wasn't speaking literally in some sense. What was Jesus saying? He he was speaking about life and death, spiritual, eternal life and death, and and its relation to sin. And he's speaking partly, obviously, figuratively, partly literally. He's pointing to real, literal, spiritual life and death. Uh, Jesus is saying, if you were heading to hell because of a sin of your right hand, uh, if, if that's how things worked, it would be completely worth it to take out your multi-tool and cut off your hand. Throw it away. It's not worth it to you. Uh, we, we know that only Christ keeps us from hell, right? Only Christ and his obedience, his perfect sacrificial death is what earns life for us. But Jesus is speaking here to the seriousness of sin. Um, and, and that it is our sin that condemns us to hell. And so, why would you play with it? Right? How could we have any assurance that we love God or that we really receive Jesus as Savior if we're treating sin lightly? Jesus says, if, if it was your eye keeping you from salvation, if it was your eye sending you to hell, you should take out your multi-tool and cut it out. It's worth nothing to you then. This is how serious sin is. This is how much we should recoil from it, how much we should hate it, how much we should do whatever it takes to get away from it. We live in a world that does not want to take sin seriously. That's natural to us in our fallen world. All of our new local, all the Denver news outlets a couple months ago ran a story on reports that came out on the most sinful cities in the U.S., it was a study done on about 200 of the most populous cities in the United States um, and, and measured in areas of like, like greed. So they used stats on theft and gambling and other things. Uh, areas like anger and hatred they used stats on violent crimes. 
um, lust, how many adult entertainment establishments and other things, um, vanity, they counted tanning salons and, and plastic surgeries and, and, and things like that. So not an overly scientific or objective study, but uh, somewhat interesting, Denver came in seventh out of about 200 or so, and that's why it was in the news. Uh, my point is simply that, that this reporting was all about sin, really, as, as defined in the scriptures, but it was not really a big deal. There was almost some pride in, in some of it, in, in some of the reporting. Uh, we don't get too worried about sin. Uh, the internet has a plethora of jokes about the Ten Commandments, which is what defines sin for us. Uh, for example, technically, Moses was the first man in history uh, with a tablet downloading data from the cloud, is a common one. Uh, I think that's funny, but perhaps not so funny insofar as it contributes to a general apathy towards God's holiness and law. If, if we're going to be as serious about sin as Jesus insists in this shocking language here, we need to be serious about his, his holy law, about the Ten Commandments that reflect his very character uh, and his nature. In, the, in this same sermon here, Jesus shares uh, a significant piece about how we're to think about and understand the Ten Commandments. So we have these, these two sections we read here this morning where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and then he goes on to give some other explanation. Jesus is not replacing what he says you've heard. He's not replacing the Ten Commandments. He's restoring them to their original intent. Uh, many people thought, Jesus implies, that, that the Ten Commandments, they thought about them in a, in a severely truncated way, right? As, as simply outward prohibitions. All right, if you haven't killed anyone, you're good. Um, Jesus demonstrates that we're to think about all of the commands uh, very broadly, uh, very broad interpretation and, and application to our lives. They, they speak to the heart. They speak to our motivation. Um, they speak to whole categories of, of sin and what is right. Um, the, the broadness of the Ten Commandments reflects the depth and perfection and consistency of God's holiness. Uh, which he is giving to us and recreating us in by his grace. That's what we've been talking about these last couple weeks. So today, as we continue to think about how to think about the Ten Commandments, I want to think about how to interpret, how to imply them, and, and how to see them broadly, uh, broadly as a mirror that shows us our sin and our need for Christ. Uh, think about them broadly as a map for life in Christ, um, how uh, that, that touches every aspect of life. So I have uh, six principles uh, along those lines for you this morning. Um, and, and just a word about the outline uh, here briefly. I'm um, uh, borrowing and, and using to some degree uh, an outline from Philip Ryken uh, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments. Um, I'm not using all of his and, and reworking it a bit, but uh, he calls them rules, I'm calling them principles, uh, but I wanted to touch on this, this topic broadly, um, and, and I thought his organization was, was very helpful on it. Uh, so number one, uh, first in thinking about the Ten Commandments is the biblical principle, the biblical principle. This, this is the idea that we ought to see each of the commands uh, in the context of the whole Bible. So the whole Bible fills out our understanding uh, of what an individual um, command in the Ten Commandments means, what it entails, uh, how it's to be kept. Um, 
that because the whole Bible is inspired by God, it's true. It doesn't contradict. And so we can understand it that way. Here's a couple of examples of how this might work. The Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment has to do with coveting, right? Wanting what other people have, not being satisfied with what you have, being discontent with, with God's provision and, and grace towards you. So anywhere in the Bible that we read about jealousy or contentment or greed or trust or, or God as, as a providing father for us, etc., all of those things are filling up our understanding of what the Tenth Commandment is, of how we, how we obey and understand the Tenth Commandment. And hopefully in just that one example, you can begin to see just how much there is to consider with, with each of the commands, God's gracious commands. You could easily do a whole sermon series on the Tenth Commandment, uh, thinking about all of those different angles and, and how the scriptures fill up our understanding of it. Think about the Second Commandment. The, the, what's the topic of the Second Commandment? It's, it's worship, how we're to worship. Right? So anything in the whole scriptures that we read about how we're to worship or what worship is, is filling up our understanding of the second commandment and how we should should follow it. And in fact, to to broaden that even more, anything at all that we read in the scriptures about the God that we worship informs our worship and informs how we understand the second commandment. That's the first principle, the biblical principle. Secondly, the inside-outside principle, we're calling it. Um, The commands, each of them speak both to outward behavior and to inward thoughts and attitudes. Uh, A shorthand for that is we could say that the commands speak to our hands and to our hearts. Um, Nine of the Ten Commandments, in the way that they're stated, very simply, uh, speak explicitly to, to something outward, right? Just the way that they're stated on, uh, in the concise form we have in the Ten Commandments. Uh, only one of them speaks directly to uh, inward attitude, which is that. That's, that's the Tenth Commandment, right? In fact, it only speaks and only has application to our hearts, uh, to, to our inward thoughts and attitudes. But the entire Bible makes clear that God is concerned not only with outward actions, uh, even when that's the, the concise summary, but God is concerned also, and, and perhaps in some sense we can say more and primarily with motivations and attitudes, which is the, the source of our actions. A Puritan proverb says, man's law binds the hands only, God's law binds the heart. Well, how do we know that? Is that, is that a biblical way to think about this? Well, we could start simply with God's nature. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Right? He sees our hearts. He knows our hearts. Nothing's hidden from him. And we have statements like 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Right? So holiness, obedience, goodness, these are all matters of the heart as much as our, our actions. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 28, David is dying. He calls Solomon to himself and to give Solomon sort of his last His last words to his son, he says, You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. 
And then he assures Solomon, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. David, in his last words, wanted to emphasize to Solomon the the importance of sincerely seeking the Lord with his heart. Uh, We come to the New Testament. Jesus makes clear in what we've read here in the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about the seventh commandment, the sixth commandment, um, he, he he says, you have heard, you shall not murder. Right, that's, that's the outward form, but he says, anger in your heart breaks the sixth commandment. Uh, God sees and, and commands your heart by his commands as well. But that, that applies to any of the commands. Jesus doesn't go through all of them there, but the, the fifth commandment is not simply about outward duty towards your parents or towards a, a lawful authority. But it's to be done from the heart. Paul says in 1 Timothy, we're, we're to pray for and give thanks for our rulers. There's, there's an attitude of the heart involved. It's always right to do what's right outwardly, even if we don't feel like it, even if our heart isn't fully engaged. But, but God commands your heart too. Uh, the Bible speaks to doing right uh, with the proper goal in mind. right? Not just checking off a box, but thinking about why, why is this good? Why does this reflect the character of God? What, do, what does this accomplish Right, we don't uh, in worship. We don't tithe simply because it's right or because we're willing. We we do that with eagerness to promote the gospel, right, to advance Christ's kingdom, uh, to help the needy, and so on. Uh, we don't just avoid stealing. Eighth commandment. We're, we're generous from the heart to to show the love of Christ to others that they would experience goodness and prosperity and thank the Lord and so on. So you see how different that is from simply obeying a rule. Uh, one scholar notes that this, this nature of God's law, that it commands the hands and the heart, is, was unprecedented in the ancient world among other religions. It was only Israel's God that, that presumed to command the heart as well as actions. Uh, I read a while back of a, an Indonesian tribe that has a religious law code uh, and their, their religious law code has 7,777 rules, 7777. Um, and a, a chief from this tribe was confronted with Christianity a while back, and when he came to really understand it, he had this comment. He said, I would rather have the 7,777 commands of the Taraj Adam and rather than the Ten Commandments of the Christians. For the Ten Commandments demand my whole heart. Whereas the 7,777 ancestral commands and prohibitions leave room for a lot of freedom. It's an interesting observation uh, that he, he really understood uh, the character of God and, and how it is that he's, uh, what he's requiring his people, how he's redeeming them. Um, though we noted last week that God's gracious law is not burdensome in that, it's, it's, it's freedom. So that's the second principle. Thirdly, the two-sided principle. The two-sided principle. Each command implies uh, its opposite, in a sense. It's like a two-sided coin. So you have, a, you have a negative side to each of God's commands. Don't do this. Stay away from this. And there's a positive side. Do this. Pursue this. This is good. Um, most of the commands are stated, the Ten Commandments are stated negatively. I think there's a sim- simple reasons for that. But... Uh, they command just as importantly and clearly they're, they're the, the converse side, the positive. 
Uh, my kids have been telling a joke lately, so much that I'm sure some of you have heard it. Um, the student comes to his teacher and says, Teacher, I wouldn't get in trouble for something I didn't do, would I? The teacher says, No, of course not. The student says, Well, I didn't do my homework then. <laughs> this is why Christians speak of, of sins of commission, right? committing a sin. that the, the command says, Do not do this, and you do it. And sins of omission. You omit what you should have done. You failed to do the good that you should have done. So the, the priest in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was a sin of omission there. Didn't break a negative command. The priest failed to do good, failed to help as, as the Good Samaritan did. Um, our, our prayers of confession that we have in our worship service often make that distinction uh, in confessing sin and, and prompting us to think in both categories. Think, think about how this works in the Ten Commandments. Just a couple of examples. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, that's the negative side of the coin. What is the flip side? It's, it's that we should promote life and protect life and health. Uh, the Eighth Command, do not steal. That's the negative side, but it prompts us to think of the positive. It, we're to be generous, to give, to, to protect and honor others' property and so on. And, and so each of the commands, as we'll see, and we, we, we go in, in uh, subsequent weeks here, will give us an evil to hate and to run from, and also a good to choose and, and to embrace and, and to pursue. So that's the two-sided principle. Fourthly, the categories principle. That is, that each of the commands stands for a whole category or a whole progression of sins. Uh, in, others, in other words, each of the Ten Commandments states sort of the end point of that category, the, the culminating sin, if you will. Uh, some, that, that's what's forbidden explicitly, as it's stated. But we should understand that, that everything that leads up to that culminating sin, everything that tends toward it, that contributes to it, even if you never arrive there to what's mentioned in the Ten Commandments, is also equally sinful is equally against the, the character of God and, and what he's recreating you in Christ to be. This is another thing that Jesus makes clear here in Matthew 5 uh, that we read earlier. So, for example, consider Jesus talking about the Sixth Commandment here. Uh, the Sixth Commandment is one that relatively very few people ever break uh, as it's explicitly stated, right? Ending someone else's life uh, with malice. Um, that, that's the culminating sin that the Sixth Commandment mentions. But Jesus makes clear that everyone breaks the Sixth Commandment. So he, he takes us all the way back from that to, to the very seed of, of murder, which is, which is in the heart. Like the seed of violence that ultimately kills is, is some kind of bitterness, invisible in your heart. And from bitterness to, to every other part of the progression that would be hatred and violence that injures and all the way to actually taking someone's life, Jesus says, is, is sin. Jesus is calling you away from that. He does the same thing with the seventh commandment. It's not, it's not simply the culminating sin of outward physical adultery. It's, it's everything that, that leads to that. Jesus mentions lust in your heart. Again, in, invisible the seed of that. We shouldn't simply think of lust for someone that's not your spouse, 
but, but anything in the category of not following God's design, tending away from God's design for marriage. Uh, spouses who are growing apart emotionally or sexually. This, this, is, not, this is contrary to God's design for, for a marriage relationship. Spouses failing to love each other positively. Uh, fostering a close relationship with someone of the opposite sex or anything that contributes even in a small early incremental way towards adultery even if you never get anywhere near that culminating sin mentioned in the seventh commandment uh, is contrary to God's law and his design his good gracious design for you Uh, so the ten commandments in a sense give us the the worst form of sin in that category, the, the end point. Um, here, Phil Riken adds a couple of examples. He says, every kind of poor stewardship is as culpable as stealing. Every kind of dishonesty is as reprehensible as lying under oath, and so on. That's the categories principle. Fifthly, the tables principle. Uh, this recognizes the basic division in the Ten Commandments, um, that, that Jesus even confirms in his summary, you shall love the Lord your God, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the first four commands have to do with our relationship directly to God, and five through ten have to do with our relation to other people. And in an important sense, all ten we, we do towards God in obedience to God, but, but there is that helpful division. The principle here is that the first table... Our duty towards God takes precedence over the second table. How, how might that apply? What, what, what does that mean? Well, if, if a parent or an authority over you, fifth commandment, uh, orders you to tell a lie, orders you into some kind of deception, how do you resolve that? Well, you, we must obey God before men. Right? God's lordship over us is, is primary. One, one particularly difficult question, also in relation to the Ninth Commandment, um, and we'll come back to this when we, when we talk about the Ninth Commandment specifically, but are, are there any exceptions to the Ninth Commandment? That's something that Christians have wrestled with. Is it ever just and right to conceal the truth or to tell a lie? So think about this scenario. God commands that we preserve life, the Sixth Commandment. Uh, if the Nazis come to Corey Ten Boom's door and say, you know, tell us whether you are hiding any Jews, uh, must she tell the truth? Ninth commandment. Well, you could argue, and some Christians come on down in different places here, but, but you could argue the truth demanded by human authority there is superseded by God's command and God's command to preserve life. So it gives us some framework for for trying to sort out some of those hard questions. We have to be careful with this principle, though, to check our own hearts and motives. We can't use this to uh, better ourselves. We think of Jesus confronting the Pharisees uh, in that one scene in the Gospels where he says they were um, failing in the fifth commandment, basically on this trying to use this principle, right? The Pharisees were saying, to their parents, sorry, mom and dad, I can't help you in your old age because I've dedicated all my wealth to God. You know, sorry about that. Jesus says that's not the way, that's not the way this works. Um, that doesn't honor God. 
Uh, We can't justify lying to our government or disobeying the law simply because we say, well, our government is godless. They do a bad job. They dishonor God and so on. Um, We we have to check our motives uh, in that principle. Then sixthly and finally, and this is to reiterate something we already talked about last week to some degree, uh, it's the love principle. That is that both tables of the law, the whole Ten Commandments, are summarized by love. Uh, it's, it's the motive behind each of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the very content of love is the Ten Commandments. Uh, we don't know how to love God or others without the law of God. Again, Romans 13, I read this uh, last week. Uh, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, we know this the summary of the first table of law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, strength and mind. Um, We may think we carefully study God's word and carefully obey it and do a better job of that maybe than people around us and if we're not characterized by love, if our lives are not stimulating love to God in the way we're living that out and reflecting his mercy and his loving kindness and his gentleness, his compassion, then we are not keeping God's commands. Uh, The summary of them is love. Uh, Paul begins Romans 13 by saying, I can, you know, fill in the blank, do do whatever amazing... uh, acts of obedience and impressive acts of Christian devotion, I can get everything right. And without love, I'm like a gong, right? Just making noise, worthless. I'm working against the commands of God. The love principle is that love is to govern and motivate all of our obedience to God who has unconditionally and freely loved us. That's where our obedience springs from. It's in the context, again, it's talked about the last two weeks of his grace. Uh, So I hope this is a helpful overview of how to think about the Ten Commandments broadly uh, in their fullness, the fullness of the gift of grace that they are to us. Um, Seeing the the, the law broadly helps us to see just how many ways we have to honor and glorify God, Um, just how many ways we have to be like him, to love others. Um, and to live out our union with Christ uh, by his grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this uh, opportunity again this morning to hear and consider your word, and particularly your good and gracious law uh, that is part of your gospel gift to us and recreating us in Christ. We pray again that you would give us uh, careful and edifying reflection on these things, Um, today and in the coming weeks as we consider each of these your commands and we pray all this would be um, revealed in us in love and would be glorifying to you and we pray in Christ's name amen